Now, I'm going to break my rules here. I'm not going to begin yet with a review. Because we're going to pick up, because I've got to finish, I got to finish what I didn't finish last time. So, last time, you remember, we looked at, well, I guess this is sort of a review. We looked last week at the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. And we looked at it with respect to, we talked a little bit about Genesis 3, we talked about uh, the covenant with Noah, and we talked about the covenant with Abraham. We didn't get to the covenant with Moses, which is where I want to briefly deal with this morning and then move to the New Testament. All right. Can you all see that well enough? Do we need to shut any more lights off? Are you all all right? Okay. All right. So, the Mosaic Covenant. Anytime now. There it is. The Mosaic Covenant appears to have a lot of if and then language. Do this and live language. And so this becomes, in our minds, contrary to the idea of a covenant of grace. Okay? So if I, if I turn to Exodus, chapter 19, verse 5 says this. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. So this sounds like covenant of works language. If you do this, then I will bless. Exodus 15, verse 26 says, If you will diligently live, listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right, etc. And in Deuteronomy 28, all of Deuteronomy 28 is one big uh, two-parted statement. If you do this, all of these blessings will come. If you do not, all of these curses will come. And so when we come and we first think about the Mosaic Covenant, our first instinct is to say, well, this is the covenant with Adam all over again. This is a covenant of works. People have to do this in order to live and be in God's good graces. So the question then comes, How is the Mosaic Covenant fundamentally different than the covenant with Adam? What is the fundamental difference between Adam in the garden and Joshua or Caleb? What? Why? Dig down deeper into that. What's the fundamental underlying difference? Yeah, Joshua is fallen, he has sinned. He cannot do anything but sin. He can't perfectly and personally obey, can he? And so we are faced with what seems to be a problem here. Either God is making a covenant that he knows there is no possibility of there ever being kept. And he's sort of interjecting it here. We've got grace with Noah, grace with Abraham, grace in the New Testament, and somehow God sticks works in the middle for what reason, we don't know. Or maybe our first glance at this just isn't the best glance. Maybe we need to think about what's happening in the Mosaic Covenant. So the Mosaic Covenant is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. It is not a do this and live. It is essentially the people of God groaning out to God and God remembering what? His covenant. With whom? Which is what kind of a covenant? 
a gracious covenant. You remember we talked about the animals and God taking the penalty? So, this is an extension of that covenant. These are all parts of the one covenant of grace. God initiating the Mosaic Covenant, all of the Exodus, everything that is going on, begins with God. We have to look at that in that context. Yes, when they get up on the mountain, when they get up on, um, it's not Mount Sinai, it's Mount uh, Nebo and Gerazim. And they're saying, do this and live. Don't do this and be cursed. They've already been taken out of bondage. They've already been freed. They've already been set to worship God. That is not an entrance into the covenant kind of thing. It is a follow after the Lord thing. In the same way that if we opened up our New Testament, there are all sorts of commands. You have your Bibles with you. Turn with me. Let's find a good grace-filled book. What's a good grace-filled book? How about like Ephesians? Right? God from the foundations of the world. Let's find a really good grace-filled book. And let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. Verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you. Verse 4. Watch your mouth. Verse 5. Be pure. Verse 7, don't associate with people who are impure. Um, Verse 11, do not take any part in unfruitful works of darkness. Verse 15, look careful how you walk. Verse 17, don't be foolish. Verse 18, don't get drunk. Verse 22, submit to your husband. Verse 25, love your wife. Um, And as we keep going down, we see all of these commands... Verse 6, children obey your parents. Verse 5, slaves obey your masters. Uh, As we go down through this, we see over and over and over again commands. Does that mean the New Testament is about things we have to do so God would love us? No. What comes before Ephesians 5? Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and 4, right? It's pretty obvious. Ephesians 5 is in the context of what God's already done. What comes before Exodus 19, 15, and Deuteronomy 28? Exodus 2. Exodus 6. Exodus 10. So it's a context we have to understand. This is one of the reasons why a covenant category is so important for us, because it helps us to understand the big picture and to interpret Scripture in the light of other Scripture, not looking at things in isolation. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't think it's going to work. All right. So let's go to close this. Let's go to let's go to where we are this week. Come on. Let's hope that it works better for this week. No. Let's go here. All right. So now, this week, we're looking at the covenant of grace in the New Testament. Let's see if this works. Now, where do we begin, Barry? Barry wanted to review the last time. Come on. 
What is a covenant? Class? An agreement? It is a relationship. It is more than a promise. It is an oath-bound promise. And it is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That's the general parameters of what we think about in terms of a covenant. Now, we come to the 3 a.m. question. It's 3 a.m., the phone rings. It's Pastor Greco. You shake your head and he says, What are the elements of a covenant? And you say? Parties. Condition. Promise. And curse. These are the elements of a covenant. Why is it important to understand these elements of a covenant? If you call me 3 a.m., I'm going to spit those out. Parties, conditions. Right? Because when we look in the Scripture, we're looking for the substance. We're not just looking for the word covenant. When we looked at the covenant of grace, we looked at it with two aspects, you remember? One is eternal and one is in time. We called the eternal aspect the covenant of redemption. It is the foundation of all redemption. Who are the parties to the covenant of redemption? The Trinity, the Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We looked at it in time. We called it, for ease's sake, the covenant of grace. Who, and this is as it unfolds throughout the whole Bible. And who do we say were the parties in this covenant of grace in time aspect? God. God and the Lord Jesus Christ as the representative of His people, right? And you remember the reason why we said this is, you remember how, now rewinding your minds before, you remember how I said up here in the pulpit there's no neutrality to Jesus? You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You're either in the covenant of works or you're in the covenant of grace. There is no in between. There's no safe house. There's no gray zone. There is no neutrality. So we said the parties of the covenant of grace are God and Christ. What is the condition for us to get into the covenant of grace? It is faith in Christ. It is Faith is the hand that reaches and obtains all that Christ has obtained in this covenant. We become one with Christ. We are united with Christ and every blessing that He has flows to us. The promise is, of course, that God would be our God and that we would have forgiveness of sins. What's the penalty? There is none because God always fulfills it. Okay? There is no penalty for a broken covenant of grace. It is always fulfilled. Now, I'm going to give you a visual image here of what we've been talking about. In Adam... We own and inherit the trespass, death, and sin. That's what Romans 5 says. In Christ, we inherit obedience, life, and righteousness. All that was Adam's is ours in the covenant of works. That's too bad, right? Nobody really wants to inherit death and sin and trespass. That's like you go 
to uh, the reading of a will and you find out that you've, uh, you've inherited one of those dogs playing poker on velvet. It's about yay big. And you're expected to put it up in the middle of your dining room, right? That's all you got. You thought maybe you were going to get a car. You thought maybe you In Christ, we inherit obedience, life, and righteousness. And what grace does is it transfers us from being under Adam into Christ. And you remember our short little quip that gets people's attention. Are you saved by works? Yes. Not my own. I'm saved by the works of Christ. Okay? What Jesus does merits salvation for us. So, God doesn't just forgive us on a lark. God forgives us because of what Jesus has earned. And so, what does that do for our sense of assurance and assurance of salvation and perseverance? Can God take your salvation away from you? No, because it's earned. You didn't earn it, but it's been earned. Jesus, according to the covenant of grace, can say, these are mine. That's why Jesus can say, not one that the Father has given to me will I lose. I've earned them, Father. I have kept the covenant. And so it gives us, I think, a little bit of a different view of Christ and our security in Christ that we can never be lost because Jesus is able And the same one who is able to make atonement is the one who obeyed the law and is the one who holds us and the Father holds us in His grip. Does that make sense? Everybody nod their heads. Go this way if it doesn't. I'll repeat it again. All right. So then the question that we asked ourselves was, this covenant of grace, is it unconditional or is it conditional? We hear a lot about God's unconditional love. But yet we said before there was a condition of faith in Christ, right? God's love is unconditional, right? It's not based on what we do, right? So that means if God's love is completely unconditional, everybody is saved, including Hitler, right? Why not? It's unconditional. That's right. It's not unconditional in the sense that it's universal. It's unconditional in the sense... That God is the one who does everything. So the answer to our question, is the covenant of grace unconditional or conditional, is yes. Election. God unconditionally elects His people. And then He is the one who gives them faith that they then exercise to fulfill the condition. So we said this, Steve. We called it asymmetrical synergism. That's your cocktail party word for the, for the day. So when you're in a New Year's Eve party and you're talking with folks and they say, I don't understand the Bible. You just say, you know what? You need to think more about asymmetrical synergism. And they'll go, what? And then you say, well, what I mean is this. And then, see, people think you're brilliant when you take a big, complex thing And you break it down and it's simple. I'm going to give you the simple too. So what you say is, well, what I mean by that is this. There's a condition. We have to believe. But God provides for the condition. He gives us faith. And then we act. You reverse two and three, you're lost. You may as well be a Muslim. You may as well be a Buddhist. 
Right? It's essential for it to be this way. And that's why the covenant of grace can be conditional. There is a condition to be met, but it is unconditional because God knows we cannot meet the condition, so He meets it for us. And you remember again that biblical imagery, you can use this as you're talking and witnessing to people, about Abraham and the treaty and the covenant with the animals cut in half. And you remember, you, whoever breaks the treaty gets cut in half like the animals. And who goes between the animals? God. Who should have gone through the animals? Abraham. And God says no. And as a matter of fact, God says so much no, I'm going to put you to sleep so you can't even think about going through. I'm going to go through. Trust me. Everybody with me so far? All right. Now, what we want to keep doing is understanding this and the best way to understand difficult and systematic topics is to watch them unfold in the Scripture and to try and organize them by means of the Scriptures. So, we talked about there's one covenant of grace, right? Abraham, or excuse me, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses. There's one covenant. Now, do all of those covenants look exactly the same? Was Noah circumcised? Did Adam go through a flood? Did Abraham get Ten Commandments on a mountain? No. So the obvious answer is they're at least a little bit different as we look at them. So then what we have to say is, okay, if they look a little bit different, what makes them alike? Right? Many of them among us here are men. Some of us have a full beard, look more like a man. Right? Do I look like Richard? Exactly? No. Can you tell that we're the same? Yes. Because there's a commonality, Right? That's, that's how this works. I don't have any A&M gear on, but I look enough like Chuck that you would understand that we're both men. That's how we have to look at the covenant of grace. There are differences, but there is a unity. And the first place we want to look for the unity is in the theme. And we see the unity clearly in Ephesians 2.12, which says this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the, what does he say? Covenants of promise. It's a very interesting phrase. Covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. Now he's speaking to Gentiles who were not members of the Mosaic covenant. Not members even of the Abrahamic covenant. They weren't circumcised. These were covenants of promise. What do these covenants of promise have in common? Let's start with Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. There's your first clue. It doesn't stop with Abraham. To be a God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for their everlasting possession. Now, if you turn on the radio, or you turn on the television, and someone is talking about the covenant with Abraham, and then they start talking about Jews, where's the next place they always jump? Especially if they're keyed into the local newspaper and the news of the day. Abraham, Jews, and the promise is what? 
they jump right to the land. Right to the land. Has it been fulfilled? 1948. Does that fulfill the Bible? Wait a minute. Who's Gog? Who's Magog? How do we fit this in to the book of Revelation? They jump right to the land. What are they jumping over according to the promise given to Abraham? What's the big deal in this covenant promise? Hint, it's in blue. They jump right over, I will be your God and go to the land. Like somehow a piece of dirt is better than God. That's the core of the promise. I will be to you a God and you will be to me a people. The land is a tack-on. It's an add-on to show that God responds to the obedience of His people within the covenant. Does Israel lose the land? Do they lose God? No. Read the book of Daniel. Right? No. Read the book of Ezekiel. So, the promise is not dependent on some dirt. It's dependent upon God. We see the same thing in Exodus. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery. And what's the big thing that He will do? I will take you to be My people and I will be your God. The getting out of Egypt is the tack-on. It's so they can be with God and worship Him. It is not the big deal of the Mosaic Covenant. It's something God does. It's the gravy. Right? God will be their God. Same promise. Second Samuel. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He's speaking to David in the Davidic covenant. Okay? Again, this is the relationship with God. In Jeremiah, the new covenant. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And what's the key again? I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is like a scarlet thread that runs throughout all of the Bible. I'm not done. In Second Chronicles, And Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be what? The Lord's people. Revelation. This is the consummation of everything. This is where we're going, right? This is what we want to see. This is glory. Jesus coming back. What is the consummation of all of history and all of the Bible and every promise? He will dwell with them. And they will what? And God Himself will be with them as their God. The fulfillment of everything in Revelation is the same promise God made in the Old Testament. Now let me ask you a question. Can you see it more clearly now than Moses could? Than Abraham could? Will you see it more clearly in glory with streets of gold? Does that mean it's any less real now than it is then? No. It's the same promise that God is keeping. You remember what we said. A covenant is an agreement between 
Two or more persons. We even set out our elements. We went through the conditions. But we said it is more than just an agreement. It is also what? A relationship. That is at the core of what God is doing with His people. He has an agreement so that He can make a relationship with His people. And you remember what we said was a great example. A great example of what it means to be an agreement and a relationship. I think, I'm not sure, I think Fred and Rachel may find out about that tonight. What is a great example? Marriage. What is glory called? But the marriage feast of the Lamb, isn't it? It's about the Lord being married to His people forever. That's why we're called the Bride of Christ. Okay, This is thematic unity. We see it throughout the Scriptures. But there's another kind of unity as well. There is an organic unity that we see in the book itself. Because we just said, so for example, the covenant of grace to Adam is Genesis 3.15. Right? Um, you shall crush the serpent, he shall bruise your heel. People look at that and they go, okay, somebody's got to explain this to me. What does it mean? Who's the serpent? What's the heel? What's the crushing? It's not very descriptive, right? It actually makes the description of Jesus' teenage years look really full, that he grew in knowledge and stature. Right? That's about all we get. We want more. We learn a little bit more about it with Noah, don't we? We learn a little bit more about it with Abraham. We get the, we get the concept of the treaty and the animals and the sacrifice. And then with, Mo, with Moses, there is a great emphasis on the will of God. Because what is, laid out in, what is laid out in more detail in the Mosaic Covenant than anything else? The law, the commandments. Okay? And so again, there's just another layer. In the Davidic covenant, what is laid out? The kingship. Right? So we have an organic unity. So what does this mean? The unity of the covenant of grace is more than just the fact that the whole Bible speaks about this. Now, how many of you have done the read through the Bible in a year? Even if you haven't finished it, right? How many of you have read one of those read through the Bible in a year plans where you read an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book, or you read some Psalms, you go back and forth, you go all over the place, right? Is there anything wrong with reading the Bible that way? Is that how you read uh, a Dickens novel? You just pick up in the middle and you say, Oh, Miss Havisham's really trying to trick him. I think I'll go back to the beginning and find out what's going on, right? No, no, you don't do that. You don't do that. Is that how you read a Tom Clancy book, right? Oh, the Red October does get away. I wonder what the Red October is. You don't do that. In this sense, the Bible is meant not just to be a book that advises us and gives us spiritual growth by looking in different spots. There is a reason the Bible begins with Genesis and ends with Revelation. There is a growth that is progressive as well. There are themes throughout the Bible, but there is a progress of the theme throughout Revelation. It's called the progressive nature of Revelation. Now, I want to be clear here. It does not mean God changes. It just means God reveals more and more clearly what He has revealed to His people throughout the book. Come on. So what does this organic unity look like? The unity is found in the development 
or the progressive revelation of that single covenant of grace throughout the Bible and the history of redemption. So, when we see the covenant of grace now, we see it as a full-blown tree. And we can go, what can you do with a tree? You can look at its leaves. You can look at the trunk. You can look at the bark. You can examine it. You can look at its roots. You can get in all kinds of details. But that's not how the tree starts out, does it? The tree starts out as an acorn. Now, does the acorn look anything like the tree? No. It's way smaller. It doesn't even look like it could be a tree. It actually looks like something you should eat. Right? How many of you would eat a tree? No. I don't even want to eat tree bark, but you can't exactly put a whole tree in your mouth. You could an acorn. In Adam, we have the acorn. God first reveals the promise of the covenant of grace. It's very encapsulated. It's a nutshell, pun intended. It is, it is a very small glimpse at what God is doing. And then what God does is He begins to unfold it. And in Noah, He then shows a framework in which creation will be preserved in the fulfillment of the covenant. So, will the earth ever cease to exist? No. It will be renewed, but it will never cease to exist because of the promises in the Noahic covenant. It gives us an understanding of creation. That creation is a part of God's plan. In Abraham, in the covenant with Abraham, we are told where the Messiah will come from. So in Adam, we had someone crushing the serpent. Who's the someone? Right. We don't know that at the time, right? But now, in Abraham, we know what? He's going to come as a direct descendant of Abraham. And where does that blessing go to? Does it just stay in Abraham's family? Because Abraham is to be a blessing to all the nations. So we learn even more. And then in Moses, he then begins to reveal to us all of the regulations and legislation necessary to be a redeemed nation. So Adam might have this question. Oh, okay, God, I understand. You're going to atone for my sin. You're going to send a Messiah. He's going to crush the serpent. I get that. I talked to Abraham. It's going to come through him. But what happens after we're redeemed? What's it like to be like God? What's it like to live like Adam forever? What's it like to live in harmony with God? And God says, well, let me tell you what it looks like. And He lays it all out. The summation in the Ten Commandments. And then he, he not only gives us the Ten Commandments, but all of those sections in the read-through of the Bible in a year that put you to sleep and that are brick wall, you know, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you're yawning now already. Why? Because it's in this law and that law and the other law and this law and the other law. But it serves a purpose. It's not to be exciting bedtime reading. It's to help us to understand God's holiness and His law. In the same way that if you really want to be put to sleep, go and flip to the book of 1 Chronicles and read through multi-chapters of genealogies. It's not there to excite you. It's there so that when you get to Matthew, you know exactly, Matthew is summarizing it, you can go back to 1 Chronicles and you can see exactly... no, no link in the chain is missing. Okay? In the Davidic covenant, 
we see that God rules in His covenant in its, in its full manifestation. We hear about the King and the King who will be eternal and that He will be with the Lord forever. And so we start to get... Now we're actually starting to get a glimpse not of Jesus' name, but of what Jesus the Messiah is going to do. Not just the end that He's going to achieve, but what He's going to do. And we can actually... Now you have to look at the Davidic covenant not as a 21st century American. Make yourself an Israelite. Now you understand what Jesus is going to do because you can look at David and say, I know what David is. He's a strong man. He's a man that follows the Lord. He's a man that rules. He's a man that protects us. Right? And then you can start to say, oh, that's what the Messiah is going to be like. And then if you get too wrapped up and you say, oh, there can't be any more revelation. This is the sum. Then what you wind up saying is, well, he's got to be a Messiah king. He's going to throw the Romans out. And you miss the suffering servant of Isaiah. You miss Jeremiah. You miss Ezekiel. You miss Micah and the being born in Bethlehem. You've got to let God keep taking you down his path. He's a patient teacher. How many of you have been involved on some level with educating your kids? Okay. How many of you think it would be a very wise thing to take a second grader and hand him a calculus book. Is that a good way to teach him calculus? Do kids eventually have to learn calculus? Let's say yes, in case there's kids in here. Let's say yes. Let's, let's just say yes. Go with me. But in order to get to calculus, what do you start with algebra? Do you start with multiplication? you start with division? Do you even start with addition? What do you start with? Numbers. Do you stay at numbers? No, you move to addition. Do you stay at addition? You count on your fingers the rest of your life? No, no, no. You memorize it and you move on to multiplication. And then you move on to more complex and more complex. So you understand. You have to progress to learn. Why would we think it would be any different with God? That He's patient with us and He carries us along. Come on. So, the Bible is not a series of unrelated events that are just tied together by God being in them. The Bible is a story. It is a story of the one single way in which God deals with His people, He redeems sinners, and He manifests His glory. And that way is shown in greater clarity as it progresses. Like the bud becomes the flower. Like the acorn becomes the tree. It is the same thing, but we look at it and we say, oh, that was a bud. We knew it was a flower. We weren't sure what kind of flower. We don't know. Oh, that is a beautiful white rose. Right? Once it unfolds. That's what the Bible does. It unfolds for us this story in greater clarity and detail. Now, where do we see this unity? Where we see this unity is in the fact of the immediate promise to Adam and Eve. As soon as they have sinned, they haven't even been thrown out of the garden yet, and God gives them the promise. He doesn't leave them to their own devices for a minute. He comes right into them. The Gospel was actually preached in the Old Testament. Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the Gospel. To whom? Luke? Mark? Paul? To Abraham. 
Paul says. The gospel was preached to Abraham. The mediator, that is Christ, is the same in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the mediator now of a better covenant, Hebrews tells us. He is, in Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ, there's another verse, wonderful verse to memorize. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the same. He appears. He is incarnated at His birth. But He is the same in the Old Testament. We see Him in the Old Testament in the pre-incarnate Christ. Where else do we see the unity? The Old Testament saints had all the spiritual benefits that the New Testament saints had. That is, God was their Father and He was their God. They had forgiveness of sins. Read Psalm 51. They had communion with God. We see this in Psalm 139 and in 73. So that's what I mean by spiritual benefits. Do not get hung up on the the greater clarity of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because there is a progress. New Testament saints, we had the Spirit in greater measure than David or Abraham or Moses. But they still had the same spiritual benefits. God was their God. They experienced forgiveness of sins. They experienced communion with God. Now, everything that they had was prospective, looking forward through the fog. Right? Anybody ever driven their car in a fog? You can, can't you? I don't advise it, but you can. If you've got to get to like the exit from the highway... And you can sort of make things out, can't you? Especially if the people in front of you are smart and they got their lights on. You can see their brake lights. You know, you can see things. But then there might be things that pop out at you that you wouldn't see at all. Right? But in a full, one of those gorgeous days when you're driving through a flat land on the highway, you can see for miles and miles and miles down the road, can't you? It's the same road. You're going the same way. But it's easier to see. That's what the Bible is like. That's what this revelation of the covenant is like. So, think about the covenant of God in a means of progression. So, it starts with Adam, and then moves on to Noah, and then goes to Abraham, and then goes to Moses, and then goes to David, and finally ends in Christ. The new covenant in Christ is the final consummation of that revelation. This is why, if I can put it to you in a very practical way, I don't want any one of you, to lose one minute's sleep worrying about if they find 3 Corinthians or 2 Ephesians. We don't need it. God has summed up all of the revelation that He needs and given it to us in His Word. You don't need me to come up to you and say, I have a word from God that you should do this or you should believe that. Unless I'm telling you something from the Bible and you go back to the Bible and you find it in the Bible. Because God has fully revealed everything in Christ. There is a progress here. And so we see this one way, but we see it in greater clarity. So we might think of Adam in terms of the commencement of the covenant. This is how it starts. We might think of Noah in terms of the preservation of the covenant. I mean, what better way for God to explain that His covenant is eternal than for Him to destroy the whole world except for the people that He made covenant with. Right? 
I mean, if you were to say, well, I don't know if God could keep his promise. Well, let me, what could God do? Could he like wipe away the whole world and everybody in it and still keep his promise? Well, maybe. Why he did it? Noah. Quick aside, this is another reason why we can never give in on the truth of the Bible. Because if you give in and you say, well, you know, the worldwide flood, I'm not sure that's scientifically possible. The best PhDs at Harvard don't think it's possible. We don't really need that. You lose that. It's gone. Poof. You lost that revelation of God. You can't do that to yourself. In the covenant with Abraham, he reveals the promise and the extent of the promise, that it goes beyond the family, that it will go to the nations. With Moses, he shows how his law works into the covenant and how law serves the covenant. Covenant is the big category. Law is the maidservant. It's not law on top of covenant or law on top of grace. We can lose sight of that because everything we read in the Mosaic Covenant seems like law this, law this, law that, law the other. But it's just describing an aspect of the covenant. The overarching covenant of grace is what's at work there. Again, with David, God reveals that not only does he have a people, not only is he going to reveal them, not only is there a boundary and a law and a rule, but he's going to be a king. And it's going to be a kingdom. Now, think about that. In order, we talk about this all the time. I want to do work for the kingdom. Oh, that's kingdom work he's doing. Oh, we want to see the kingdom get built up. Where do we get that from? The Davidic covenant. See, you just brought it into your mind. You just know it because you've been raised on it or you think in those terms. But it's a biblical category of God's relationship with us. And then in Christ, we see the consummation of this covenant. Now, what do we... So... What I want you to see is this. There is a central theme in the Bible, and that is the grace of God. And all of these covenants revolve around that central theme. God has one purpose in history, and that is to reveal His glory in His grace. And so all of these covenants participate in that. There is a unity and a progress. All right, everybody with me so far? So, let's look at a way of linking these very clearly. In the Mosaic Covenant, the foundation of the Mosaic Covenant is the covenant with Abraham. We saw this before in Exodus 2. So, the Mosaic Covenant, we could say, absolutely depends on the Abrahamic Covenant. If there's no covenant with Abraham, there's no Mosaic Covenant. And this is where people get lost and they go astray because what they want to say is, Abraham, grace. Moses, law. And then what they want to say is, Abraham, good. Moses, bad. We need to be more like Abraham and less like Moses. When in reality, what we need to see is God's grace to both Abraham and Moses, and that His grace to Moses depends on the grace of Abraham to Abraham unfolding. How do we relate the Mosaic Covenant to us today with the New Covenant? Because that's another way we say, Moses, law, Bad work. New Testament, Jesus, grace, good. Don't be like Moses, be like Jesus. And while they're telling us who to be like and not to be like, what they don't realize is they're pointing us away from God and toward our own works. How do we relate to it today? Come on. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. How does slavery relate to the Christian? 
slaves to sin and death. Right? Slaves not just to a Pharaoh, but to the law and the consequences of the law, which are sin. And so the way that we understand, I mean, this is all throughout the New Testament, trying to understand salvation, what? You shall be free indeed, right? I will set you free. Liberty in Christ. Don't be a slave. Be a son, Paul says. All of these images are in our minds. For us to understand the redemption from sin, we need the Mosaic Covenant, don't they? Let me put it to you this way. You don't, don't raise your hands and don't answer because nobody's going to get embarrassed. We like sin, don't we? I mean, come on. Let's be serious. We like sin. We like getting something for nothing, don't we? We like being able to say what we want to say. We like making fun of somebody behind their back. We like getting money. We like doing things like that, right? What we don't like are the consequences of it. We're enslaved to sin. If we didn't have the picture, come back to me to my favorite movies of all time, right? Cecil B. DeMille, Ten Commandments. If we didn't have the picture of the Israelite with the sweat and the blood and the picking the heavy rock and your back hurts just from looking at it, and you say, oh, that's what slavery is. Oh, that's horrible. Right? If we didn't have the tie-in to slavery and we think about cotton fields and abuse and all this stuff, oh, nobody wants to be a slave. Slavery is not exciting. And then God says, your sin is like slavery. Light bulb. Ooh, it's really not good for me. It's really miserable. You know, the slave might have thought it was the cat's meow when he got the scraps from the master's table. But really, that's the scraps from the master's table. That's not a steak. And so God, by the way in which He reveals this to us, helps us to understand this. Now, what do we see in terms of the new covenant in Christ? <clears throat> it's probably best encapsulated in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. You know it well. It's the words of institution of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Where does that come from? The blood of the covenant. Where's the first place we think of when we, think, when we hear blood? What? Well, that's not the first place we look. You guys are good. We, th- we think of the cross. We think of Christ, right? But really, where it comes from is Exodus. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. This idea of a blood, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. This idea of blood goes all the way back to Exodus. And when Jesus is using this language, this is not just predicting I'll be on the cross language. This is God language. This is covenant language. This is I will make you a part of God's people language. It's built into the language. The people, the the disciples would have heard this and they would have heard the echoes of Exodus. This is why the cross is significant. His death is a covenant sacrifice. This is why the Bible can say, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Not just because God woke up one day and said, you know what, I think I'll make it a a necessary condition for um, 
the atonement to, to be shedding of blood. No, it's built into the whole way he relates to his people. It's a bond in blood. And Jesus here is inaugurating a new relationship with his people. He is fulfilling the covenant with Abraham. This is why when he's born, they say that he is born to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. It's why when the apostles go out preaching the gospel, they say, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What they're doing is they're going out and saying, we're preaching Jesus. This is what God promised to Abraham. We're just completing the work that God has given us to do. Christ is the Passover lamb. His body is given for you. His blood is poured out for you. There is an intentional bringing together of the Passover and the Last Supper. It's to remind us to think covenantally. What happens with Jesus is not separate from the Old Testament. Last quick aside. This is why we are whole Bible Christians, not just New Testament and Psalms Christians. Because this all comes together in God's plan and what He has revealed and what He has promised. And then we see in the birth and death of Christ, God keeping His promise for thousands of years. And generation upon generation upon generation. And what happens during all those generations? Do His people follow right along and do everything He says and be squeaky clean? No, they are a complete mess. They are a complete mess. They are so bad, they get kicked out of the land. But God still keeps His covenant. We see the forgiveness of sins in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, He's the Passover lamb, bearing the sin of many. Now, where does this idea come from? Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to die? The New Testament says, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Why is this? Hebrews tells us that He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance. So, verse 16, For where a covenant is involved, sometimes your Bibles will use the word testament or will. It's the same word. For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Hebrews is telling us that it was not just something that was good for us that Jesus died. It was absolutely necessary. And so we see here our elements. Remember, there was a condition. What happened if the condition was not met? There would be a punishment or a curse. That's why Christ died. He took the curse for us. He takes the curse of the covenant of works. And so this is God keeping His Word. We see it in In Genesis 15, he's promising to Abraham. This is the story we talked about, about the sacrifices and going through. Who's passing through the pieces? It's God. Jeremiah 34, you will see there is an example of them saying, you're going to be cut in two because you broke the covenant. God keeps his word. Even though we have, like sheep, gone astray, we've turned everyone to his way. And the Lord laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. I'm going quickly. Go back to our chart. So you see here, you have the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. You see, we are taken out of the covenant of works and brought into the covenant of grace. 
So everyone outside of Christ is still in the covenant of works. What, the, what does the covenant of works bring? Sin. Death. Disobedience. Romans 5. What does the covenant of grace bring in Christ? Life. Obedience. Righteousness. Holiness. We have a new covenant head. We are a new people with a new life and a new heart. And so what we have here now is this covenant of grace. And all of these elements in the Bible are different ways of looking at it. It's the same promise from God. It's the same work of God. God doesn't deal in different ways with different people. He just reveals Himself in more and more clarity. That's what's happening here. So what's going on in the New Testament is really not, nothing different than what was going on in the Old Testament. Next week, we're going to see that. Because what we're going to do next week is we're going to look at the bridge between the Old and the New and the prophecies and see them fulfilled. The prophecies in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah and fulfilled in the New Testament. So in conclusion, how do we apply this to ourselves? First, we have to remember that we are in covenant with God. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are part of God's people. And because of that, all our sins are pardoned. All of our temporal mercies, the breath we breathe, the air, the the roof over our heads, the friends that we have, the relationships that we've been giving, they are all fruits of that covenant. They are not a coincidence. They are not luck. They are a part of the blessing of God. You can plead the covenant with God. You're in relationship with Him. When you're trying to kick a sin that has got you by the neck, you don't just say, please forgive me, God. You say, God, I am your child. You have sent your Son who died on a cross for me. You have brought me into relationship with you. I want to be with you. This sin keeps us distant. Could you please help me to mortify this sin that has got a hold of me? You could plead the covenant with God. If you're in the covenant once, you're in the covenant forever. If you're in the covenant with God, then you are going to your God. It's a relationship. In your direction, God's covenant shows you how to walk. You must love your God. You must walk holy. You must walk thankfully. Because God has already done. You are in relationship with Him. I've been remiss, so this week I'm not. This week I give you homework. So next week we're going to look at the bridge. And your homework is to read three passages in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 7, Jeremiah 31, and Ezekiel 37. And if you've just said to yourself, oh man, you just went way too fast. This afternoon, this PDF will be up on the new website page. Okay, Each week, each lesson is now up there for you to download. The, the lesson and the handout. And I think next week, because I'm on vacation this week, Next week, I'm going to work with Dave to get the audio up as well. So you can go back and you can review. Okay? Because if I keep us longer, my wife who's helping with the lunch is going to... She's going to show me what it's like to break the covenant. <laughs> we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. All right? Um, 